In October 2020, the Genesis Foundation announced the Genesis Kickstart Fund, a £1 million fund launched by John Studzinski, CBE, founder and chairman of the Genesis Foundation, to support freelancers in the creative sector. The fund will be rolled out during 2021 to mark the 20th anniversary of the foundation, and it's designed to enable outstanding freelance artists to stay on their career paths and to explore new possibilities in a world radically altered by COVID-19. The Genesis Kickstart Fund is steered by its advisory council, which includes over 30 distinguished artistic leaders, one of whom is Jamie Njoku Goodwin, Chief Executive of UK Music. And he's one of our guests on this Genesis Artistic Minds podcast, part of a series produced to mark the Genesis Foundation's 20th anniversary. Joining him is Ed Vasey, who is Minister for Culture, Communications and Creative Industries from 2010 to 2016. Now, as Lord Vasey, he sits in the House of Lords and maintains very close links with the world of the arts, sitting on numerous boards and arts-based charities. The focus of their Zoom conversation is the effect of the pandemic on the arts, the government's response and what lessons may be learnt for the future. Jamie was a special advisor at DCMS and also he's a million times more talented than me. He can't say this sort of stuff. So he uh, plays musical instruments. He's a chess prodigy. So he walks the walk as well as talks the talk. I just talk the talk. And it's very nice to see him again because he's left government and is now running UK Music, which is the premier trade body for the music industry. So I'm hoping we're going to have a very interesting discussion about uh, what's happened to the cultural sector during the pandemic and what the way outs are. Hello, Jamie. Hello, Ed. How are you? I'm very well. Obviously intimidated to be on this podcast with you, you multi-talented person. Well, I should say, we shouldn't get into too sort of backslapping territory, but as someone who's who's widely thought of as the best culture sector the UK's never had, um, it's it's a really interesting conversation because... For both of us, we've experienced having to make policy when in government and now in situations when uh, when not in government, sometimes having a different view of things, sometimes having a better view of things, a bit more distant from it, and being able to address this sort of question that we're all battling with now, which is what next for the cultural sector and how do we steer the cultural sector through this, which has probably been one of the most existential crises it's faced in generations, really. Yeah, I mean, let me set the scene. I mean, I should say at the beginning that we're both obviously conservatives and I don't want to make this too party political, but I would say that to a certain extent the conservatives get a bit of a bad rap in terms of their support for the arts. I mean, when I was the arts minister, obviously we were having to cut funding because every government department was having to cut funding. But the combination of sort of core arts council funding, direct funding of our national museums, plus the lottery money, which is massively underestimated the huge impact it's had on the renaissance of the arts in the UK which was introduced by John Major although obviously Tony Blair's government oversaw a lot of it meant that the arts were in a pretty healthy state even though we had to make some cuts and I also think I'm very pro this kind of concept that the kind of mixed model of the arts works very well so you have some core funding from government but also arts institutions themselves have to raise money from philanthropists and they also have to be quite commercial as well they have to raise private income from shops, paid-for exhibitions and so on. So the arts were in a pretty good state, but obviously they fell off a cliff after COVID. Uh, They've been hit very badly in most arts institutions and indeed 
the private arts world, if you like, which you now represent to a great extent in terms of music festivals and the music industry, uh, I've been hit very hard. I mean, you're at the chalk face, so what have you seen? Yeah, it's really interesting the way you analyse that because one of the big problems the whole sector's had is exactly what you've just said there, that mixed model, where lots of organisations and lots of bits of the sector have done everything they can in recent years to try and make themselves more commercial. So rather than just relying on, on subsidy, have a commercial element to them. Now that means that whereas 20 years ago there are some organisations that if a pandemic hit, their income would have been guaranteed. Because their income has now been moved to a sort of a more mixed model, um, and they're much more reliant on ticket sales, on shops, on other ways of commercialising themselves, they've suddenly found themselves in a really awful state. The way I look at it is this pandemic has been driven by a virus which breeds on social contact and the arts and culture at their heart also survive on social contact, their social experiences, their social endeavours. So the past year of government policies that have understandably, given the current public health concerns, focused on reducing social contact, the arts have been absolutely hammered by that. There's two phases to it, isn't it? There's supporting the sector through the course of the pandemic and making sure you can keep the sector alive. Then there's also the, the next question, which is a question we're grappling with right now, which is how do you move from the support phase to the recovery phase? How do you get this sector back up and running, back up on its own two feet? And there's lots of organisations that I speak to, very much on the commercial side of things, that they've had government funding, they've been recipients of the Cultural Recovery Fund, they've been furloughing staff, they're really grateful for the economic support they've got from government, but they actually don't want to be getting economic support from government. They want to be getting back to a situation where they can lift themselves up off that taxpayer support and be viable, commercial, successful entities again. It's been fascinating how across the sector, lots of organisations have responded quite differently in the past year, but organisations which may not have seen themselves as facing the same challenges as others have responded very similarly. But it's difficult, particularly when you're in a pandemic where you don't know where the end point is. So I think last year, if people had said, right, we're definitely going to be in this for 18 months, two years, some of the policy decisions may have been slightly different. Whereas when you're going into something where you don't know when you're going to be coming out of it, it means the policy responses you've got are very, very different. So we don't know how long the Cultural Recovery Fund is going to be needed to be continued for. Ideally, the Cultural Recovery Fund can be ended as soon as possible, because when it ends, that means that we're through this pandemic. But as the pandemic goes on, as organisations aren't able to support themselves, then there's going to be a need for them to be supported from, from government. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I have been sort of slightly critical of the government at the beginning of the pandemic. I slightly jumped on some of the bandwagons, you know, did they lock down too late and so on. And I've sort of reversed my view. I certainly think in the last few months, partly based on the astounding success of the vaccine programme, but also I think the roadmap out of lockdown has been very well managed. I do think the Cultural Recovery Fund, I, again, I have a slightly mixed view of it. I thought when it was announced, I thought, fantastic, that is a really generous package. You know, in our world, 1.5 billion is a lot of money compared to the sort of three to 400 million the Arts Council gets. But I do think it's taken a very long time to get the money out. There are kind of three or four topics I think we could cover where the government potentially could have done better or certainly we need to drill down into. But so let's take the Cultural Recovery Fund. I thought it was very generous, but I thought it took a long time to get the money out. And it did make me think slightly that you could have done a kind of just straightforward back-of-the-envelope calculation. How much income did these guys have in a normal year? Let's just give them the equivalent income this year so that they don't have to kind of lay off people. They can keep the heating on, as it were. 
But there seems to have been, it's almost, you know, the Arts Council goes through these four-year reviews of all its arts organisations, and it seems to have followed a similar principle here where it's kind of drilled down into the detail, whereas in my view it should have just got the checks out. A bit like a Donald Trump stimulus check, dare I say it. So, I mean, I don't know if you share that view. Big money, but took a long while to get out and could have been perhaps a lot more straightforward. Yeah, so I reckon that's definitely the case. If the organisations that needed support were the organisations that the Arts Council typically funds and typically subsidises. One of the big differences, and I think we've definitely found, is lots of organisations have found themselves engaged with the Arts Council that have never spoken to government before, that have never spoken to Arts Council before, that will be looking at sort of Arts Council application forms and saying, actually, like, what does this actually mean? How do we really do this? Um, and even just the idea of looking into accounts and working out how much you need, how much, you, um, how much you've used in a normal year. Um, and that process of trying to make sure the commercial side of the sector was actually being able to get access to these funds just as much as the, the bit of the sector that's historically had that relationship with DCMS and has historically had that relationship with Arts Council, I think took a bit more time. It's, it's difficult. I know there's definitely lots of organisations across the sector um, that share your analysis of that of wanting to get the money as quickly as possible because they were sitting there, standing there, not knowing if they'd still be alive in two weeks' time and having to make really life-and-death business decisions based on whether or not they were going to be get, getting funding that, um, that took quite a while to get through. I won't turn my nose up at sort of 1.66 billion, but there's all, sorts of, there's all sorts of things that you'd probably like to be done better. I mean, I think the other thing that could be a kind of post-COVID change, I mean, I remember when, uh, you know, I was Arts Minister, you used to get these very interesting debates, which I was completely kind of open to. So you would have Labour MPs, for example, saying, you know, I've got lots of brass bands in my constituency. I actually had a lot of brass bands in my Tory constituency saying, why don't they get Arts Council funding? And I thought that was a very fair point. And we all know kind of what the subtext of of that was, which is that posh arts get funded and what might be described as less posh arts don't get funding. So the kind of ecosystem could be much bigger than it is. The Arts Council funding tends to be quite sort of narrowly focused. And then also, when I was the Arts Minister, it was just getting going. This thing was created, which you probably now have a lot to do with, called the Music Venue Trust. And they were making the point that lots of music venues were closing, and we changed, to a certain extent, the planning regulations. We didn't want, you know, if new flats were built next to a nightclub, we didn't want the developer trying to close the nightclub because they had come kind of second to the party, as it were. And certainly, you know, you take an iconic music venue like the Marquee or whatever... To my mind, that's just as much an arts institution as, you know, the Hayward Gallery. And I don't know whether you've picked up in terms of how you've dealt with government and the organisations you represent, whether there is a kind of appetite for a wider state support, if you like, grants and support for what might be regarded as kind of more commercial arts venues. I would be very open to that. I think that would be a good thing. It's fascinating. It goes into a wider question about economic sustainability of the arts, but also this broader question, which is the fact that lots of the cultural institutions we have today, lots of the cultural heritage we have today, hasn't come down to us through some of the standard market-based forces that people might normally look at when they're funding themselves. So the example I always use is Wagnerian opera. We've got Wagner operas today because a mad king decided to give Wagner like the equivalent of millions and millions and millions of pounds to go away, build a huge venue, have as many musicians that you, as you want, don't really worry about it needing to make money, um, but we're going to do this for the art's sake and for the, for the sake of the arts itself. Now, 150 years on, how do you make that work in an environment where you're having to be commercial? And there's a real argument for not just the economic value of the arts, but the social value of the arts, the positive mental health benefits you have for the arts, 
but the important role they play within communities. So there's a very similar situation applying to music venues. The way they're described to me was, I think by Andy Burnham actually, they are the football pitches. They are the grassroots football pitches of the music industry. Yeah. Lots of them don't run for profit. Exactly. Um, lots of them aren't trying to make money, um, but they are absolutely vital within the broader ecosystem because that's where your emerging artists come through. They are so vital for the talent pipeline. And if you're approaching them purely as how do you make them commercial, arguably they don't necessarily fulfil the role that you'd actually want them to be playing within that wider ecosystem. So taking a step back and looking at what the sector looks like and how you can make sure it's a strong and vibrant post-pandemic, I mean, I hope there is an opportunity for that. Over the past year, we've basically had very little live music. Lots of organisations have done everything they can to try and keep going and the full credit to them. But I will say that you don't really realise how important something is until it's gone. And we've seen over the past year what life looks like without the sort of cultural experiences that lots of us potentially took for granted pre-pandemic. And I do hope that this might almost be a moment for us to say, post-pandemic, we've seen just how important the arts are. In particular, we've seen just how important music is. Um, It'd be interesting to see if the Treasury new... looks at um, things like tax credits. I mean, we extended the tax credits to... You know, I was thinking about when you were talking about commercial organisations being the grassroots. I mean, we subsidise film industry to a massive extent two three hundred million quid a year which doesn't kind of appear on the books because it's all in a tax credit which is effectively a check to a large hollywood production but we did extend those george osborne really got the bit between his teeth having been quite skeptical to begin with to theaters to museums that sort of allows me to segue into the individuals because one big issue that a lot of people in the arts have talked about which again i suspect you are probably living the experience in terms of people you deal with are the freelancers so the big big missing group in terms of being supported were people who relied on freelancers I was talking to a friend this morning who's you know a friend of his who's a West End dancer who was in shows you know back to back all the time has completely run out of money because she can't obviously get any work at all she's a freelancer I don't quite know what the answer is. Again, to me, it was, again, a bit like a sort of Donald Trump, Trump stimulus check. I should stop using that analogy. To try and find a way to, to have given people some kind of check, because they fell between two stools. They weren't technically self-employed. They couldn't necessarily get bounce-back loans. And they've been left pretty much high and dry. The Cultural Recovery Fund seems to have been conceived on the analysis of make sure you protect the organisations and the institutions, because that's what's going to be creating your activity post-pandemic. And so ensure those are survived. And then post-pandemic, we can go back to having a situation where they're creating lots of jobs and lots of, lots of activity. The problem is that, that works for sort of three or four months if you're just doing that short term. But when you've got no activity happening for 18 months, in the same way, there's lots of people who found themselves living on universal credit. And lots of people have said, oh, it's awful that universal credit has been what people have been expected to live on. For the, for the, it shows universal credit doesn't work because they've seen what it's like to be living on universal credit for 18 months. Universal credit is never intended as something that's meant to be a long-term welfare scheme for people. It's meant to be something to get people back into work. And that's almost the same challenge that people in the cultural sector have faced, particularly freelancers. They haven't really been able to get access to the Cultural Recovery Fund. One of the things we've been pushing for is for the COF to be open to freelancers. So in Wales and Scotland, they allow freelancers and project grants to be made to make sure it's accessible to freelancers and to individuals. And that's not yet the case in England. And it does have an impact because we hear every, every week I get emails in from people saying, I haven't been able to work since March, but haven't actually been able to kind of get access to economic support. And what it's doing is it's making people question whether or not this is an industry they want to be staying in. 
which is tragic when you think of the fact that the UK is and this country should be a global home of musical and wider artistic talent. And if we get to a situation post-pandemic where important, talented, um, valuable parts of our industry, our workforce essentially, have decided that the creative sector and the cultural sector isn't really where they want to be having their long-term career prospects, that's incredibly damaging for what is a, as I keep saying, a national asset. Just the music industry alone generates 5.8 billion quid for the economy. Um, it supports 200,000 jobs. Of those 200,000 jobs, 72% are self-employed freelancers. So whereas lots of other sectors have felt some of the impacts of what's happened to self-employed people, I think the music industry has been almost overexposed to it because the vast majority of our workforce are self-employed. The vast majority of our workforce are freelancers. So this isn't been an issue that impacts 10 or 20% of our workforce. It impacts the majority of it. And if anything, furlough, which at the start of the pandemic, I think lots of people in the sector thought furlough was, the main, was going to be the main source of um, income. It's not. It's, self-employment support has been much more important than furlough. Um, for lots of people and there have been many people who haven't even been able to get access to self-employment support so working out how we can protect those individuals through the course of this pandemic but also how do we protect them going forward Uh, sometimes if people are seeing this as a precarious job if they're seeing this as a sort of precarious career path that has an impact on our wider talent pipeline and has an impact in the next 5 10 15 years which is exactly the sort of time when our cultural sectors and creative sectors should be helping power our, our recovery. I was always really struck, and I think, Ed, you, you were fantastic for this when you were in government and, and out of government, championing the positive role that our creative sectors, and in particular the music industry, but the wider UK arts and creative sector can have in the next decade to come. And there's such a powerful case for the creative sectors, the creative industries, um, and the music industry for being where that international, global, economic success is going to be coming. And if we don't have the workforce to do that, then that's not just bad for our individual sectors, but it also is a massive missed opportunity for government and the country. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack in that. I mean, I think one, one thing I was going to say, given what you've just said, was you look for, you know, what are the benefits of the pandemic, if that doesn't sound too ghastly a thing to say. And there were kind of two things that came out of it for me, or, you know, we're still in it. But the first was in terms of, you know, one of the things I did focus on a lot as the culture minister was to try and keep making the point that the arts are good in and of themselves, of course, and if you run a local theatre, your main job is to put on fantastic performances for people to come and see, but also they should be seen as much more part of uh, their wider community. And I've I've talked to a few theatres during the pandemic, and to a certain extent, you know, it's a kind of mea culpa on their part. They've suddenly, you know, they've engaged with their local health centre, they've engaged with obviously kids being homeschooled and so on, and they've kind of, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that terrible cliche that's come out of the pandemic. You suddenly know the names of your neighbours. And similarly, with arts organisations, they suddenly know the names of their neighbours and they can see a much clearer way that they can engage in their wider community on, you know, young people, health, criminal justice, education, massive issues where arts organisations are fantastically well-placed to make a really big impact. So I really hope that's one of the legacies of the pandemic. I'm... Never confident there will be these kind of legacies. The other is obviously digital, where to a certain extent the music industry in particular is obviously, was the canary down the mine as far as digital was concerned and has kind of, to a certain extent, come out the other side. And I certainly think the pandemic has given a kick to museums and to theatre in particular to really understand digital isn't an add-on. It should be something that they should be thinking about from the very beginning. If you're going to put on an exhibition 
you have your first conversation about, you know, what the ex exhibition is going to have, but alongside that should be, and what is our digital outreach going to be like? And similarly with a the theatre, you're putting on a performance, you should be thinking about what are the digital opportunities here? And there will be new technology that may come about where you put on a play and you're going to get 10,000 people through the door over its three-month run or whatever, but you're also going to be using technology, which hopefully will become more affordable, where 100,000 people around the world might also watch that performance live in inverted commas. I mean, I suspect you've probably seen this in the music industry, that people have been thinking, how the hell do I engage with my fans when I can't perform for them live? What is it that people look for in music? Is it the experience? Is it the sound? Is it the experience? Is it the... There's, a variety, there's been a bit of a variety of views in people I've spoken to about this. And there have been some organisations that have absolutely embraced streaming performances. And if they haven't really done it before, they've done it for the first time over the course of the pandemic, and they love it. And I think this is particularly the case in the classical sector, where lots of orchestras, which didn't, didn't really have, have a history of doing it, have done it, and they'll keep doing it. Even when we've got full capacity back in concert halls, they'll keep doing it, um, because they've seen the benefits of it, but they've also seen it can be a new revenue stream. But there's a danger there, which is they're seeing a potential new audience, but it doesn't just mean a potential new audience, it also means potential new competitors. So if I was saying, right, I'm going to go to a concert tonight, I want to go and see one of the city's best orchestras play, I'd have kind of four or five of the top orchestras to choose from. If my choice is I'd like to go and see a live stream concert, one, you're going to do it from home and your choice has been expanded, not just within the five or six miles that you're willing to travel, but across the world. But it also means, and I'm fascinated by this question, does there become a trade-off between professionalism and quality? I won't name names. There's some of the world's best orchestras who still just have a single camera recording their performance. And it's just that for sort of two hours with a, with a break in the middle. And that's their idea of a live stream. Um, and yet there'll be some orchestras which people would have historically thought were not, not at the same level as some of these other orchestras, but they do it in such a fascinating, engaging, enjoyable way. And normally, if I had a choice between going and seeing the Vienna Phil or sort of one of the secondary orchestras from a European capital, you'd be Vienna Phil every time. Whereas now, there are some that are doing it really interestingly. I think that's really interesting because I, again, I'm slightly biased here, partly because I have a role as the chairman of a company called Digital Theatre, which takes plays online and sells subscriptions to universities for kind of drama students. And they have, obviously, the play itself and supporting uh, material. But the, the key point there, apart from obviously plugging my company, is this kind of goes again to kind of my view on cultural policy, which is I always thought the Arts Council should be seen as a sort of development agency. And when you were talking earlier about kind of global Britain and the creative industries being a fantastic calling card for the UK and a fantastic industry, it strikes me that this is a fantastic opportunity which will not be taken up for the Arts Council and DCMS to lead this kind of digital renaissance, to say we will provide a kind of ecosystem for Britain to be the best place to do digital arts, by which I mean not NFTs and digital artwork, but that could be part of it. But also, how the hell do you make the live stream of a play or the live stream of an orchestra fascinating and engaging for an audience that watches at home? First move advantage, isn't it? Mm. Um, the sort of approach I always try to take to policy making is look at what you need to do now, but also have a mentality of in a year's time, in two years' time, what will you wish you'd been doing now? If you look at where it's going, whether it's five years, whether it's ten years, live streamed events are going to be much more an established part of the landscape. Yeah. And 
you can sort of see a situation in a decade's time where you think Germany starts embracing it, Canada starts embracing it. I wish we'd moved first and moved fastest. Yeah. Um, because on lots of these things, particularly when it comes to tech and digital, when it's so easy to do things digitally, have people based in countries overseas and very kind of very quickly, the country that moves first and fastest on it is usually the one that establishes itself as the one. And it's, all, it's also about this kind of crossover thing. You know, if I was running a theatre, I would try and hire a Sky sports producer. You know, Sky is always thinking about how am I going to make a football game even more engaging to the audience at home? You know, stick a camera on a player or whatever. But um, the other thing that, I mean, we kind of have touched on it during the conversation about, you know, coming out of the pandemic. So let's talk about coming out of the pandemic because obviously the past is the past and there has been a lot of frustration and I share it that museums and so on weren't allowed to stay open. I kind of get the government not wanting people to travel and go to things, but even now museums are not open, but you can cram yourself into your local retailer. That's a good thing. I'm very pro a local retailer opening up. Whereas at a museum, you could have a ticket. It would be socially distanced, the big rooms. It is extremely frustrating. I mean, I hope that we will get back to a new normal my suspicion is that even the generations that people suspect might continue to stay at home, the older generation, for want of a better phrase, will come back to the theatre. I think theatres kind of put in the kind of post-COVID protocols, so future outbreaks, they can have the right gear already in place, potentially socially distanced performances. I mean, I hope that things can get back to normal, but maybe it will again, the legacy will be changes in design that Future theatres, when they're built, will be built with pandemics in mind. I don't know, really. But I do feel, to a certain extent, the arts have been at the back of the queue for quite a long time during this pandemic in terms of people really leaning in to think, how can we get things back so that people can enjoy performances? They have. I think when a lot of these decisions have been made, it seems there's been... Well, there's always been a triangle, a triumvirate of different factors that people consider and the government considers when they look at what order to open things up. And that's how safe are they how economically beneficial they are, also how socially beneficial they are. And if anything, it's one of the reasons why I want to be making the case even more strongly about the economic impact of the arts. Continue making the case even more strongly for the social benefit and the social impact of the arts. But also, it's why we've been doing everything we can to be looking at how to make ourselves as safe as possible. So, for example, Mark David from the Music Venue Trust has been doing amazing work on things like ventilation, looking at what sorts of ventilation mechanisms you could be installing in venues and spaces to reduce, reduce the risk. A lot of the way people have talked about things, they've talked about theatres and music venues and nightclubs as if they are creating the risk. They've talked about as high-risk settings. They've talked about almost as though they are creating risk of transmission. The risk is created by infectious individuals within those spaces. The problem you get to is that you don't know who are the infectious individuals and who aren't. Um, it's why I've been, I've been very supportive of certification, actually, because I've, I've not just seen... COVID status certification as a means by which you can reopen these sectors and get them back up and running, but also means you can keep them open again. Because um, the real hammer blow to our sectors, I think, would be being allowed to open again and then four months down the line being closed. Like Everyone's looking towards June 21st and saying we need to get open on June 21st. But if you open on June 21st and for some reason are forced to close again on September 21st or October 21st, um, that will be a nail in the coffin for lots of cultural organisations, lots of businesses, lots of businesses in the supply chain. But I think you're completely right about looking towards the next pandemic as well, because there's an argument that we've got the vaccine, we can just open up. The reality is we're going to be hit by another one of these pandemics at some point soon. 
lots of people talk and act as though the last one, one of these we got was the 1918 Spanish flu. These big, proper big pandemics come around once every 100 years. We're in the clear. We're safe till 2120. We don't really need to worry about it. Look at what's happening with the loss of biodiversity. Look at what's happened with increased global travel. Look at what's happened with climate change and the impact that has on pandemics. We're going to be hit with another one of these at some point soon. I hope I'm completely wrong on this. I hope we're never going to be faced with another global pandemic. But in my heart of hearts, I think we will be. It will be in our lifetimes. It will probably be sooner than we expect. And the approach we've had in this past year of lock things down, close down whole sectors and wait for a vaccine. Science has ridden to rescue on this one. But if we're going to have a mentality of we just have to close things until the vaccine comes and whole sectors are going to expect that they should be closed for the better part of a year before they can reopen, that's not really tenable for sectors. And that threat and fear of that being what the blueprint and the approach is would probably have a chilling effect on lots of sectors, particularly the ones we're talking about today. Which is why we need state-backed insurance, don't we? Looking at it in terms of there's the support during the pandemic, but there's also the action you need to get us back up and running and recover post-pandemic. This insurance point is key for that second part. And if government really is planning to continue with the roadmap and ensure that we can start by June 21st, what we are in danger of seeing is come June, come July, a whole load of large music events, a whole load of festivals, a whole load of um, events which should be generating loads of money for the economy, supporting jobs, being very important for local communities and also taking place across the UK. A lot of these events will not be taking place because they've had to cancel simply because they haven't been able to get insurance, which is ironically going to be costing the taxpayer in the longer term because they'll be furloughing people longer and they'll need to be paying out more in cultural recovery fund for lack of a scheme which, if the roadmap is accurate, wouldn't pay out a penny. We insure museums, you know, if somebody nicks a titian from the National Gallery, in theory the government's insured that titian, so it's not as if it's unprecedented for the government to have an insurance scheme in place. The, the one I always point to is film and TV. So, last, so film and TV face exactly the same challenge as this. No one wanted to base film and TV productions in the UK because they thought, well, there might be a lockdown in time soon, why are we going to put a load of money into it? If we can't get insurance for this on the private market, because the private market isn't offering insurance, why should we be investing in the UK? So the government did a film and TV restart scheme in October. It was fantastically successful. I think to date, it's, according to the government, it's protected something like 20,000 jobs. It's enabled more than 200 productions to go ahead. Well, one, it just shows the huge economic benefit um, of these sectors. And as we're coming out of the pandemic, what we're going to need most of all, what the priority for government and the country more widely should be is, what are the sectors that are going to power the economic recovery? What are the sectors that are going to power our national social recovery? And across the creative industries, these are the sectors that are going to do it. It feels like we're in touching distance of getting back to normal. As I say, I think the legacy of all this is, if I were the Arts Minister again, as it were, or I had supreme power for a day, it would be secure arts funding going forward. So it's the wrong comparison to make considering what the government's doing to the international development budget, but having a clear budget that's kind of permanent, extending the reach of government support to more kind of inverted commas private venues like music venues or brass bands, getting the arts really focused on the digital element of what they do, future-proofing against future pandemics is kind of my prescription. As always, you've, you've, seen, you've answered the question before it's even been asked. <laughs> Look, it's, it's fascinating it? because I, I think we're definitely on the same page on there should be a real opportunity for our creative and cultural sectors. But a little bit of me, probably the more optimistic side of me, does hope that if something good can come out of this pandemic, it's as a country we'll value the arts more. When you have these shocks to the system, 
Um, it's almost like a lightning strike where you see everything really clearly. And actually, we've seen where the structural weaknesses are. Mm. Um, we've seen where some of the opportunities are. Mm. And I just, yeah, I, I hope it's something that we can continue to take forward. For example, money being ploughed into the cultural sector and to keep it live. To me, there'll be criticisms we can have. We can say, could it be done better? Could it be done worse? The culture sector is one of the few sectors that's actually had sector-specific support. Now, to me, that's, that's a good recognising that the a good absolute point. importance of the cultural sector. And we don't want a situation of government recognising the importance of the cultural sector in a pandemic, but then post-pandemic, we sort of go back to thinking, OK, can, now we've saved it, it can just sort of stay there. It's been saved for a reason. Government's yeah. put political and economic benefit and capital into it, hopefully, yeah. because I think we value it. And hopefully, I suppose, post-pandemic, we can continue that focus to make sure that the UK is the best place in the world to create, produce and consume culture. Jamie Unjoku Goodwin was talking to Ed Vesey. And you can find out more about UK Music at ukmusic.org. For more about the Genesis Foundation and its partners, please visit genesisfoundation.org.uk. To listen to more episodes in the Genesis Foundation's Artistic Minds podcast series, please subscribe and consider leaving Artistic Minds a review. And look out for another episode of Artistic Minds very soon.